Let me begin with a question. Friends, what would you say holds the most power and most sway in America today? Perhaps you'd say the most power resides in the Oval Office with the President of the United States. After all, the President holds, at least in many people's eyes, a significant amount of power and influence, not only in our country, but in this world. There are also other power structures in this world. The power, of course, of governments or big tech or Hollywood, even artists and musicians, educational institutions, all of these different entities, they have big influence in our world. So friends, who holds the most power? And more importantly, how should we respond to to who holds power in America, whether it's political or structural or cultural? I think our temptation is to either be a lion or an ostrich. A lion attacks. What does an ostrich do? It puts its head in the sand, right? So friends, what are you most tempted to do? What would God have us do under these circumstances? Do we fight the powers? Do we acquiesce to them? Do we replace them with one of our own? Do we run away from them and seek refuge in Canada or another country? And and friends, these powers, they aren't neutral, are they? They are not benign or, or soft or flappable. They are often antagonistic, in fact, pressing against the church, pressing against Christians, pushing against God's moral standards. Now, what is this called? It's called rebellion, right? It's called mutiny. It's not hard to think of particular nations, particular rulers that are dead set against the God of the Bible, whether North Korea or Iran or leaders of terrorist organizations. There are thousands of examples of a world that is in rebellion against God. Christians in Egypt are nervous about the future as the Muslim Brotherhood strengthens its grip on that nation. Here in the United States, the Parents Research Council released a full report that uh, nudity, full nudity on TV, rose 40%. Now, this is between the years 2011 and 2012. It's, you know, over a decade ago. You kind of wonder what's going on now. Of course, there are all kinds of rebellions. Some are overt, some are more covert. People go to school and raise their kids and pay their taxes and are generally good citizens, but with very little concern about following Jesus. This is what I like to call suburban rebellion. Friends, rebellion can look big. Powers of this world, the nations, the rulers. Rebellion can look small. And regardless, we live in a world that openly opposes God, do we not? And so it's in this it's in this context that we read Psalm 2. So let's read this passage together. Hear God's word. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and their then the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. 
I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun, or he will be angry. You will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of this passage and sermon in a sentence. The enthroned God has decisively set his son on earth's throne to end this world's rebellion. Friends, isn't this good news? The enthroned God, the God of the heavens, has decisively, powerfully set his son, and that would be Jesus, on earth's throne. This has already happened to end this world's rebellion. This ought to produce incredible rest in our souls. Psalm 2 unfolds with three voices and then our response, three voices in our response. Let's look at the first voice. Notice in the first three verses, the world shouts. The world shouts. Now, I think Psalms 1 and Psalms 2 are meant to be read together. They introduce and orient the entire Psalter. That's the whole Psalm hymn book. And I want you to notice Psalm 1 starts with the blessed man, or in the CSB, the happy man. Psalm 2, notice at the end, the end of Psalm 2, it ends with describing a blessed people or a happy people. So the bookends of Psalm 1 and 2 are very similar. So in Psalm 2, the way of the sinners that is described in Psalm 1 becomes more specific and more serious. Now it is a wicked coup. It's a violent insurrection against God and his king. And so we begin with the world's rebellion. <clears throat> the psalmist is amazed that anyone would be foolish enough to fight against God. And yet, here we are. Look at verse 1 with me. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? You know, if there was ever an emoji Bible, I don't recommend anyone does this, but if there was, this, this verse right here, verse 1 of chapter 2, it would have a lot of SMH, shaking my head emojis, would it not? Lots of face palms, right? I mean, why would the nations rage and scheme? Don't they know that they cannot fight and win against God? And do you see that word plot in verse 1? It's the same word translated as meditates in Psalm 1 verse 2. It means to murmur or to talk under your breath. So the righteous in Psalm 1 murmur about God's word. The wicked murmur about rebellion. And we see in verse 1 that this rebellion is an empty effort, is it not? Now, there's a political dimension here as we're talking about particular kind of ethnic groups or people groups, or we could even consider geopolitical countries. But this uprising that we see here is not limited to this. 
All the peoples of the world are in this together. It's not limited to social class. Notice both the peoples and their leaders, the upper and lower classes have set themselves against God. So this is worldwide rebellion because it's rooted in the sin nature we have all inherited from Adam, right? So friends, if you travel on the Amazon River for five days deep into the rainforest, the people you meet there are set against God. Or if you ride the crowded subways of New York City, the people pushing by you are set against God. And what do the nations do against God? Notice verse 3. The world is shouting. I'm whispering. They're shouting, don't tread on me, God. Get off my back, God, you know? We don't want your ethics. We don't want your dictates. We don't want your promises or your covenants. Now, here's the question for you and me. Do we hear this voice? Can we discern the unruliness of this worldly voice? It's out there. It's pervasive. They're shouting. They're not whispering. So can we hear it? Or has it so blended into our own thinking that we don't find it offensive? We don't find it concerning? Has it mixed too much into our own thinking that the world's rebellious voice has all of a sudden become our own voice as well. And notice where this rebellion and this plotting is aimed at. Look at the end of verse 2. It's not just God, it's not just Yahweh, but it's also his anointed. Now, who is that? This is a reference to a king coming from David's line, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7. The term rendered anointed in the Hebrew is Messiah. It'll be one of David's human descendants. I mean, Solomon was great. Maybe another king in the line of David. Well, we have to remember Israel was mostly a minor power in the ancient Near Eastern world. It would have been laughable, laughable for a king in Jerusalem to think he was this major player um, in the world scene. So, So with the worldwide scope of Psalm 2, these words fit the kings of Jerusalem kind of like NFL shoulder pads fit on my five-year-old, okay? They don't fit at all. (laughs) Psalm 2 is just too big for the ancient Jewish kings. Psalm 2 can only apply to one king in all of human history, and his name is Jesus. He, he alone is the anointed king in this song. Friends, you know this. The world has not set itself against the idea of God in general. People all over the world, they're religious, they're spiritual. But by nature, we are against the God who has revealed himself through his son, Jesus. Historically, kings did rise up against Jesus. Herod fought against Jesus when he was a baby. The Jewish leaders plotted about how they could kill Jesus. And this rebellion didn't end with the death and resurrection of Jesus. The early church... They faced so much opposition, did they not? And they saw in this very psalm fulfillment in the life of Jesus. They took great comfort in this psalm. So I want you to, I want you to see this. Flip over to Acts chapter 4. It's a passage we read earlier. Matt Jordan read for us. Acts chapter 4, it's 969 if you're using one of the chair Bibles. It's in the New Testament. It's always nice when the apostles can interpret and apply an Old Testament passage for you. It's exactly what we have here. We don't have to do any guesswork. 
I want you to see this. So what is the story here? Well, Peter and John, they were arrested by the Jewish leaders. They were put on trial. They were eventually released, but they were warned to not speak about Jesus again. And I want you to see their response. Look at their boldness and their conviction. Chapter 4, verse 19. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, what do they do next? So they go back, hang out with their brothers and sisters, kind of in the early church in Jerusalem. What do they do next? Well, they had a Bible study. And in this Bible study, they looked at Psalm 2. And after they had this Bible study, they prayed. Hey, guys, I think Psalm 2 applies to this situation. We should look at it. And then let's pray. Let me show you their thinking, starting in verse 25. So they're praying to God. And they say this, you said, you, God, said, through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David. So they think that Psalm 2 is attributed to David. And here it is. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus whom you anointed. Okay, so let's play connect the dots here, okay? So who are the Gentiles and the rulers and the kings that are plotting against God and his anointed? Well, according to the apostles, it's Herod and Pontius Pilate and Israel and, and the Gentiles. And, and who, who's the anointed king? Well, notice it says, they assembled against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. There it is. And what is the rock-solid truth? that energizes their prayers. I want you to see this. Look at verse 28 with me. To do whatever your hand, God, and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats, threats of the world, and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Friends, God is sovereign over all of this madness. The nations and the kings and Pontius Pilate and Herod and unruly humanity and the Jews, they are all plotting. They're all scheming. But it's all in vain. It's only God's plans that are not in vain. His purposes cannot be thwarted. And that's a good thought as we move to the next voice. Notice with me verses 4 through 6. Flip back to Psalm 2, verses 4 through 6. We see the father, and he's laughing. The father laughs. Where is God in all of this mutiny, friends? Where is God in all of this worldwide rebellion? That's what we want to know, right? Where is God in the midst of harmful ideologies being pushed in our educational institutions and workplaces? Where is God in the midst of a proposed amendment to the Ohio Constitution? It's called the right to reproductive freedom with protections for health and safety. This is an amendment that will make abortions available at any month of pregnancy with no parental consent needed for a minor. Friends, the peoples are plotting. The peoples are scheming against God, against his anointed. 
Is Godwin getting all political here? No, this is a moral issue. This is a moral issue. But I want you to look at verses 4 through 6. We have a God who is in the heavens. And he is not wringing his hands. He isn't anxiously pacing in his throne room. He doesn't call in his generals. He doesn't hurry into a fortified bunker. He is in his throne room and all is well. In fact, he doesn't even bother standing. Notice he's so unconcerned. He's so unperturbed that he sits. He sits on his throne, calm and cool and collected. And everything in history, everything in your life and mine, every bit of opposition and interference is part of his plan. This is what the apostles believed in Acts chapter 4. Notice again the description here, the one enthroned in heaven. This is not the first or last time we see this sort of language. This description of God the Father saturates the biblical witness. So think with me of Isaiah chapter 6, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. We see Isaiah walking into the temple of God. His king Uzziah has just died. He's looking for comfort. He's looking for assurance. He's looking for certainty. certainty. And what does he see? He sees God. He sees God sitting on a throne. And there's angels that are circling this throne and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And it's such a picture that's full of splendor that the train of God's robe is filling up the temple and the voices of the angels are so strong, so powerful that it's shaking the temple that he's at. But here's the deal. This throne and this picture that he sees, it's not just right out in front of him. It's high and lifted up. It's high and lifted up. So why is God described like this? It's because his throne is above all earthly thrones. In our psalm, David wants us to know that God's reign is an exalted reign. Our worldly kings, our rulers, our politicians, our lawmakers might be, this, might be sitting on their own kind of temporary thrones They might have temporary power and influence, but friends, God's throne is higher. His reign is exalted. He has no rivals, no challengers. God's not voted in. He's not nervous about opinion polls. He doesn't need Congress to make his case, nor riots to defend his cause. He holds absolute, certain, unchallenged rule over this world. So, of course, what's he going to do? He's going to laugh, right, from his place of lordship. I mean, what else is there to do? And he's laughing because this uprising doesn't actually threaten him, does it? Nations rage, and and God laughs. He doesn't have to rage. He doesn't need to plot with others. He doesn't take counsel from anyone. So he laughs. And he laughs not because the world's rebellion is some kind of silly joke, No, God takes sin seriously. You know, when we disobey, when the world disobeys, when the powers of this earth disobey, we are spitting on his glory. We are dragging his name through the mud. In fact, think about this. The way God triumphed over his enemies is through Jesus' death. Listen to this verse, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. 
God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, public shame. How did he do this? By triumphing, triumphing over them on the cross. Do you hear that? So, so God's laughter is part of his judgment on the powers of evil. But notice, not only does God laugh, he also speaks. He says a few things in verses 5 and 6, right? The world can plot and scheme and rage, but God's word stands firm. In the beginning of time, what did, that, what did God do? He spoke, right? He said, let there be light, and there was light. And here we see God continuing to speak. And this time he's setting up his king. He's establishing this earthly throne with the same powerful word that he spoke creation into being. Friends, there is no power in this world that can stop God's word. Pharaoh tried to wipe out Israel, but ended up educating Moses in his own palace, the guy God would use to deliver Israel. Haman plotted to destroy the Jews, but he was hung on the gallows that he built for another. Jewish leaders put Jesus on a cross, but as we just read, God used the cross to triumph over sin and worldly powers. Paul and Silas, we read in the book of Acts, they were beaten, they were thrown in jail, but through their suffering, the jailer was saved. The emperor Diocletian, he would set up these pillars that would proclaim victory over the church and victory over Christ and Christendom. But it would be just seven years later, Constantine would come and take the throne and Christianity would become the state religion of the Roman Empire. Friends, God's word, God's purposes stand firm. Today as well, today as well, Jesus is still God's anointed king. His words in verse 6 Words of coronation are still true today in spite of the hostility and the en enmity, right? The kingdom of Christ keeps growing. The church has flourished to the point, listen to this, to the point where 70% of Christians in the world today don't come from the West. At least 50% of Christian missionaries come from non-Western countries. In the Middle East, more people have been converted in the last 25 years than have been converted in the last 1,400 years. That's since the birth of Islam. There are at least 3 million Christians living in the Arab world today. Friends, God's word stands. He has set Jesus on this throne, and Jesus hasn't budged from his place of authority. His rule is still in effect and yes, the world may shout and scream and plot and scheme. I want you to notice who has the final say. It's God. Okay, so the world shouts, the Father speaks or laughs, and then finally uh, the Son proclaims. Look at verses 7 through 9. Notice God's king is a preacher. What's going on in these verses? Well, now it's this king who's speaking, and he's speaking, and he's reflecting back on kind of his coronation moment. So Jesus Christ repeats God's decree to prove that he has the legitimate right to rule the world. That's what's going on in these verses. Jim Johnston has helped me to see this a little better, and these are some of his own observations, and I want to share them with you. So here we see the king, Christ, announcing, first of all, his identity, and then his destiny, and then finally his authority. So his identity, his destiny, and then finally his authority. So let's work through these three pieces quickly. 
So first of all, Christ proclaims in these verses, notice, his identity. Fundamentally, who is Jesus? Fundamentally, who is the second person of the Trinity? Well, according to these verses, what do we see? He is God's Son. When you think of Jesus, this should be the foundational way that you think about him. He is the Son of God. And so Jesus shares the very life and being of God his Father, and God his Father shares the very life and being of his Son, Jesus. And here what we see in this psalm is the Father and the Son working in unison, because they are unison itself. In unison, they are establishing this new rule and bringing this kingdom. So the first thing I want, to, want you to see here is we're looking at this coronation moment where, notice in verse 7, the Christ says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. That's the first thing we see. There's this kind of vertical dimension. So we're thinking about Jesus being God's son. But there's also a horizontal dimension I want to point out. God also called Israel his son. So if you see this in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and Hosea, and being God's son was at the heart of what it meant for Israel to be God's covenant people. And so this king in Psalm 2 is God's son because he represents all the people of Israel. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. This descendant, this king, would represent Israel. That's what kings do. But God also said in 2 Samuel 7, that prophecy, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So this king would be God's son, first of all, and he would be a representative of Israel. Now, friends, why is this important? Why is this sort of theological reflection important? Well, it's because representation is at the very heart of our salvation, is it not? Jesus embodies Christians in himself so completely that his obedience can be counted as our obedience. His death can be counted as our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And his unending life is our unending life. We are saved because Jesus is the Son of God, God's Son and our representative. Now, what about Christ's destiny? Put your eyes on verse 8. What do you see there in verse 8? Well, God has promised to give him, Jesus, the farthest reaches of this world as his inheritance. His destiny is to rule this planet. So what is the outcome of all of these kind of unruly, rebellious nations and powers? Jesus is going to rule over them. He's going to bring order and peace to them. And this has always been God's aim for, for this planet. Now think back with me to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. Adam was supposed to expand the borders of the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Nope, wrong garden. Garden of Eden, right? He's supposed to expand those borders. He's supposed to be fruitful and multiply with Eve to fill the earth with godly image bearers. But he sinned and he was expelled from that garden. What about Israel? It's the same deal. Israel was supposed to receive the promised land and expand its borders, be fruitful and multiply so that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. But they sinned, and they were expelled from the promised land. So here in Psalm 2, God decrees that there's going to be a king. He's promised this king, and he's going to be raised up from the line of David, 
and one day he will possess the earth. This will be his inheritance. In other words, where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And then finally, we have Christ's authority. Look at verse 9. God has commissioned this Messiah king to use whatever force necessary to subdue the world. Look at the force that he's going to use here. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. Now think about how ancient kings often function in wartime. First, he would send messengers under the flag of truce, right? If they are rejected, well, he's going to use force. He's going to go to war. In the same way, friends, Jesus calls people everywhere to repent before After some time, he will use force. God has tasked Jesus to end worldwide rebellion. He will finish that work one day. But today, the truce flag is kind of out, right? God is being patient, utterly patient with all of us. Jesus is being offered freely to rebels, to those who are mutinous. And churches like us and Christians like us, that's what we do. We offer Christ. And when did this happen? When did this coronation moment for Jesus happen? Well, Paul tells us in a speech he gives in Acts chapter 13, he quotes these verses and he concludes that this coronation happened at the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, this has already happened. This isn't second coming Jesus here. This is first coming Jesus. He is king. Okay, so so what's the takeaway here? That's a lot of kind of theological reflection. What is the takeaway here? Well, here's one of the takeaways. Jesus has bigger muscles. Jesus has bigger muscles than all of the potentates of the world combined. If there was ever a time we, the church, need to hear this word, I think it's right now. You know, we're on the cusp of another whirlwind of campaigns and votes and elections, whether it's in 2023 or then we got to ramp up for 2024. Friends, we need to know something. We need to know what this psalm teaches us. And here's what this psalm teaches us. Human might does not last forever. Do you hear that? Human might does not last forever. So brothers and sisters, don't be impressed with human power, especially political power. Make no mistake about whoever will dominate the news in the future, whether it's candidates or celebrities or athletes, today's superstars will become tomorrow's never-read Wikipedia articles. The only hope for Americans is not a great America, but this king, this king that will produce a great and everlasting kingdom. Do you realize, friends, that America is not going to last? You ever had that thought before? America has a time stamp just as every other earthly kingdom. And Christ will shatter the evil of America, and that should offend every single person in this room. And that should be the best news ever. Because his kingdom is better. Yes, better than even the best version of America. Okay, so three voices. Let's get to our response. Here's the fourth point. You'll see it on your screen. The blessed take refuge. The blessed take refuge. Let me read verses 10 through 12. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge 
in him are happy or blessed. I want you to notice, friends, I want you to notice how patient God is as he holds his hands out to this rebellious world. He invites all. This is really an invitation, is it not? He invites all, especially worldly powers, to examine themselves. Hey, come to your senses. Don't ignore my son. Be wise. Serve me reverentially with fear. God is patiently reasoning with sinful humanity and earthly powers. He's giving them a chance. He's inviting them, notice, to pay homage, verse 12, to pay homage to the Son, literally to kiss the Son. It conjures up pictures of a vast throne room, and you've got all these subjects and viceroys that are lined up, and they're all coming towards the king. And what do they do? They take hold of his hand, and they kiss his hand. It's a show of loyalty. It's a show of allegiance. So, friends, it's about how each of us relates to the Son. Either we kiss the Son and take refuge in the Son, or we continue to rebel, and then we will perish. Superintendents, lawmakers, governors, educators, prime ministers, presidents, they can kiss the Son and then do their job under His Lordship, or they can rebel against the Son and receive His wrath. It's the same for any authority figure in Probably every person in this room has some authority given to us by God, by nature of our roles. And so every day we make choices. Kiss the sun and go to work. Kiss the sun and then be a mom. Kiss the sun and then lead my team in the office. Kiss the sun and be a good husband. Or we can choose self-sovereignty. For Israel, as they sang this song, they, they were given this song in this, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week, book one. They sang this song in their post-exilic state. So this must have been so encouraging to them. They had no king. They were longing for a king. They were longing for the king that this passage promised. The glory of their former days was gone. They were experiencing the raging nations of Assyria and Babylon and Rome. They felt like exiles, much like we do. So singing this psalm must have given them great confidence. And I just, I just wonder about you and me. Do we have that sort of confidence, good confidence in the Lord? Do we have that? So as we come to a close, I want to point out two kinds of confidences that we can have from Psalm 2, okay? Two kinds of confidences. Here's the first one. Our psalm, Psalm 2, invites us to be confident in promoting God's rule on earth. You know, one of the reasons we fight against abortion and fight for religious liberty is because Jesus is king right now, right? So when the powers are promoting an unjust law, we Christians have the freedom to pursue reasonable political actions to attain a just goal, not only for ourselves and the next generation, but for the good of society, the shalom of this world. And so let me encourage you to vote thoughtfully, to campaign meaningfully when God's moral codes are being tested. The present reign of Jesus over the powers of this world gives us permission and confidence to do just this. Some of us, I think, are circling the wagon and just kind of waiting for Jesus to return, okay? I think we need to be more active, more aware, more concerned 
We need to work with other Christians to promote God's reign on earth. But this isn't the only thing we should say about this. There's a second kind of confidence that we Christians should have. Our psalm invites us to have a confidence when the world rejects us. We might work hard for the good of society, but society might be working hard against us, right? And so Psalm 2 reminds us that God isn't surprised and His Son, Jesus, still reigns. So if you are worried that the church is in danger, I want you to remember Jesus' words. The gates of hell will not prevail upon it. I want you to remember the words of Hebrews. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken in the midst of the shaking of this world. I want you to remember Psalm 46, which was read earlier this morning. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So we will not fear, even though the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. The Lord of hosts is with us. He calls us to be still and what? Know that he is God. Friends, have we forgotten this? That our citizenship is in another kingdom from whom we have allegiance to another king. His kingdom is not of this world. The ethics of his kingdom do not bend to the social norms or policies of our day. Our king rules in a different way. Our king does not need our party of choice's agenda or candidates or legislation to extend the boundaries of his kingdom in this world. Jesus began expanding his kingdom 2,000 years ago as 3,000 repented of their own kingdoms and sought refuge in his. We can trace how his kingdom grew in the book of Acts. It doesn't expand through geopolitical rule or forced re-education. It doesn't expand with human weapons like guns and tanks and threats and lies. It expands with a message of a cross and an empty tomb as individuals are converted and then gathered into churches. That's how his kingdom expands and has expanded for 2,000 years, one life at a time, one soft heart at a time, one church at a time. And practically, friends, this means when you preach the gospel, you are doing your part. If Jesus is king right now, then proclaiming his saving reign is the most important political action you can take. Preaching the gospel of another king, proclaiming the, the good news of another kingdom. This is what we must learn to do. We must learn to speak God's truth to power. And I just wonder, where is God calling you to do that? Is it at your school? Is it in some tall building somewhere? Is it at home with your own children or your grandchildren? Who are you calling to kiss the sun? to come under his lordship, to take him as your refuge. Friends, we, we should be the most confident people on this planet because it's not just that Jesus is coming, but that he has come. We are such a peculiar people, you know? We're not a people looking for a king. We're not a people looking for a kingdom. We're not a people searching after some victory. We are a people who have found a better king, who have found a better kingdom, and who therefore can celebrate a victory already had. Our hope isn't the future inauguration of some president way out there. Our hope is in the past inauguration of Christ and his kingdom at his first coming and the consummation of his kingdom at his second coming. 
And therefore, friends, we can rest well. We can be confident. We can relax. We can be bold. Because the enthroned God has set his son on earth's throne to finally put to end the world's rebellion. Amen? Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to ponder our passage.